I love to see people say, I can't believe it. I slept for the first time in 10 years. I can't believe it. I didn't want chocolate today. I can't believe it. I haven't had coffee in two weeks. That has never happened to me in my life. My PMS is, is gone. My ovariances are healed. I mean, the amount of things that we get that aren't even the intention of the, of the diet I give. The only intention I have of the diet is to lower adrenaline and balance blood sugar. And when you do those two things, the nervous system can heal. And then from the nervous system healing and having less adrenaline, all these other systems heal too. So it's like you can't expect to heal your trauma if your body isn't being nourished and your food isn't building your capacity for sensation. Hello and welcome back to the Your Great Podcast with your host, Unique Hammond. I created this space for those on their healing journey who seek tools and inspiration. One of the things I learned on my healing journey is that information is great. But really what transformed me was inspiration. When I read the healing stories of others who healed naturally, it filled me with hope and it inspired me. It inspired me to show up better for myself. It inspired me to show up every day, one bite at a time. It inspired me knowing that my body wanted to heal. I just needed to figure out how to help it do that. And in my case, I was able to do that, which is pretty crazy. But yes, information doesn't always mean transformation. Sometimes it needs that little extra something special called inspiration. So I'm excited to share a conversation I recently had with Luis Mujico, who is a somatic educator, and he is just wonderful. I really enjoy the information he puts out on somatic healing, and I learn a lot. I also have the honor and pleasure of speaking to his course a few times a year on the role of nutrition in healing our nervous system. Many of you know my story, but I had full panic attacks and lived in anxiety 24-7. One of the first things I noticed by eating what I call the desperation diet, what I call the bean protocol, what I call a whole foods diet with a focus on fiber, was that my nervous system was the first thing to calm down, and then my gut. And I was like, whoa. Honestly, I was a little unnerved by it because I didn't know what to do with a body that was calm. I had never experienced that before. And as unnerving as it was, it was also an incredible type of bliss because for the first time I could actually begin to notice how my thoughts created anxiety in my body. That was kind of mind-blowing to me because before I just really didn't see the connection of what I was thinking to what I was feeling until my body was calm and quiet and suddenly I could see the difference. Anyway. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did, and I hope you learned something, and I also hope that it helps you along your amazing healing journey. Hello, my friend. I was looking at your page and I saw Somatic Educator. Do you go by more educator or therapist, or does it matter? I just transitioned to educator because therapist was what I did for a long time, and there's that connotation with the therapist, you're one-on-one in the room with them, and they're kind of giving you the truth about yourself. 
And I just love being a teacher so much more. So now I'm just teaching these days. It's interesting that you've made that transition because more and more I've been contemplating that transition myself of moving more as education because that is actually, to me, the education of health and wellness and the philosophy of it is where it's part of what really me likes too. me out, you know? We can talk about the beginning. There's a lot of people who, and I know that somatic therapy is becoming more and more talked about and more mainstream, but I would love to educate my community who don't know. I know a few of my clients have actually done the course with you and, and just rave about it. But what is somatic therapy? Gosh, I'm still trying to find an easy answer. Somatic experiencing is a way to learn how to witness and relate to your body through sensation. That's the easiest way to say it. The intention is to do that so you can release any kind of unprocessed stored trauma as well as daily stress that comes with it. And it's different. Do you, does one in a one-on-one do some talk therapy as well as a way to get in touch with the emotional components of of mm-hmm. feelings and thoughts or thoughts around feelings or is it thought? And then it's the big feeling, question. Feeling and then you know, I'm, I'm starting to believe they're kind of the same. I'm starting to believe that there's like a nonlinear time when it comes to thought and feeling, because there's so many times I can notice, oh, there's this feeling in my chest and it leads me to a thought. And then there's many times where I can have a thought and I feel the feeling come up. So there's kind of this, this spectrum, this relationship where they're just they feel like one body in many ways, thoughts and feelings. So uh, the, the jury's out. A lot of people wonder, and some people say, like in the SE world, the somatic world, it's often the idea that story follows the state. So a lot of us are trained to and believe in the idea that every story and identity and concept comes from a conscious or unconscious physical state first. That could be true. I just noticed that when I have a conscious thought, even a fake one, like if I say right now, no one's going to like me, I will feel a rush in my chest just from saying it out loud. So that's an example of the body responding to even what it hears me saying. Interesting that it can be something untrue as well, that the body still responds to something that you know is not true. Because let's say, for example, others liking you is a place that you've transcended, right? That you are beyond the space of looking for that outside validation. Does one ever transcend that sense of wanting outside validation? So is there a part of, I'm worried that somebody won't like me? Can it still elicit a response because there's a part of it that's true? Or can you actually lie to yourself mm, and still create a that. response? All of the above. I mean, it's interesting you say what you say because I'm, I've come the farthest in my life now than ever in terms of whether someone likes me or not. It, it really barely affects me, which is huge if you would have met me 15 years ago you would think that it could never have been possible because i was the best performer to make everyone like me it was like my goal was that everyone i didn't care about anything Mm. else in life as long as someone liked me and that meant i didn't care about myself so i would burn out i would eat poorly i would get sick i would withdraw my truth i just wanted to be liked because security for me was overcoupled in being liked and this is part of the answer, these overcouplings, which are brilliant um, concepts that came, Peter Levine came up with, these, these words for these healing experiences we've always had. Overcouplings are when we have a sensation or experience that feels like something from the past. So there's this time traveling happening somatically where I see you and whatever you represent to my subconscious about past experiences of people like you, there's a sensation that follows. 
everything is overcoupled, whether it's positive or negative. So there's no not being overcoupled. It's just what is it overcoupled with? And so for me, being disliked when I was growing up was overcoupled with actual threats from people. So then as an adult, if someone disagreed with me, disliked me, said something negative about me, it meant to my body something bad is actually going to happen to you, even though it wasn't true. So when you even think about you can say something not true and feel, overcouplings tend to not even be true because they're not happening in present moment. So it's more of like when I said out loud, no one likes me and I felt the rush. The rush comes from responding to no one likes me, but then it settles right away from responding to the reality that, well, so far one person does unique. I do, and I don't care. <laughs> and when I go through those three, a release occurs. And that's kind of like in a nutshell what somatics give us. They don't keep us from getting activated. That's literally called dissociation or death. Those are the only times we're not going to feel our activation. It They let us get activated and they let the activation come up and then go down instead of just staying up. So in that example, you ran through unique likes me, I like me, and wow, actually, I really don't care. And that's and the nervous system responded to to kind of you getting in touch with reality, but it doesn't change that. So, okay, so I think what I hear you saying is that we're human and we're always going to have responses, even if something isn't true. It's still going to trigger yeah. the part of us that had that experience of somebody else, right? But then in a present-day embodied state, you can actually go through, oh, yeah, but you know what? That's, that's, if they don't like me, that's okay. And bring yourself back to a baseline of embodiment again. So you, so we never get away from the physical response, even if it's not, it's no longer true or no it's, longer. It's such a beautiful way to put it, Is that especially what you're when saying? you're saying embodied, because in this, in this example you're giving, which is again, really the, the gold around any kind of healing, it's what are we embodying? Are we embodied in the present moment? Are we embodied from a past moment? Are we embodied a present future idea? Most of us, me included for a long, long time, are embodied in the past and future. We're not embodying right now. So I'll say something to someone like, can you feel the absence of threat? Instead of saying, feel your safety, which is so intense to tell someone, feel, you better feel safe right now. It's more like, can you feel the absence of threat? It's like, Oh, that's interesting. Absence, can I? And any of you watching, you can try right now. You can look around the room. And what tells you right now that threat isn't present? There's so much. There's the fact that, okay, nothing's after me right now. The walls are holding up. I'm breathing. And so I start embodying this moment. And then I start gaining a somatic awareness and a language of here I am. That's what this place feels like. And when I think of a past abuse, let's say, I feel that, but that's not now. So it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It doesn't mean you deny it. It just means you get to learn how to tell the difference sensationally of when I'm embodying a past threat or I'm embodying this moment right now where there's no threat. And that's where sanity and healing actually really comes from, just being embodied to the present. In a space of reacting to the past or worrying about the future, to to come back to an embodied baseline is to sit in the present and to actually what is that called it's anchoring to something safe either inside of you or in your environment a, a plant or general environment of looking around and going i am safe and whatever i'm responding to in past or present 
Neither That's are right. current. And it's everything Neither you said except for the I am safe. We never want to assume. We want to really like look. And so there's, I love how you said anchor, because it's one of my favorite words to use somatically when we're doing this practice. The, the practice that we call it in my course is finding safety in yourself. And so it's this moment of, I'm not looking for safety on TV or on the other end of the phone or on the news or out the window. I'm starting with where in me feels safe. And if there's nowhere in me that feels safe, because sometimes there isn't, sometimes we can't access that. Then I do what you just said. Okay, what's the next thing closest to my body? Oh, there's plants. There's some light coming in. There's the smell of someone cooking something. Like, what's the next thing that I can anchor into? And in that anchoring is a biology that shifts. Like, adrenaline literally changes how much you're making will change because you don't have to adrenalize to prepare for threat because the body realizes, oh, there's no threat right now. And it momentarily starts to discharge and relax. That's when we're co-regulating with, if it's not something within us, it's something in our environment. That's right. And the co-regulating is a really simple way of saying with another, you know, finding safety with another. And it mm-hmm. can be plant, animal, human. Mm-hmm. It can even be memory. There are people that will co and this is like a more psychedelic take on it, but you can think a most beautiful thing that's ever happened or look at a photo that takes you back to something gorgeous. And your body will start finding safety in that being of memory. So it's it's like infinite where we can find safety, actually, when we start learning. That is really beautiful to actually access the space and time in your mind or memory to help anchor you in the present. Does adrenalize, fight or flight, follow thought or follow feeling is such an interesting one to me because there'll be moments where I feel like everything is calm, but I feel adrenalized and I think the interesting part that you brought up was the subconscious, whether it's active present thought or if something in the environment without without us realizing is triggering this subconscious fear and suddenly adrenalized, not having a conscious be like, well, my life is good. Uh, my home life is good. My work life is good. Why am I feeling these triggered feelings, adrenaline is rushing and I feel unsafe, even though consciously or even in this moment, I don't, I don't feel any thread, but maybe somebody passed through your space that reminded you of something That's in a subconscious way. Exactly. So then to be embodied means you can go, yes, something just triggered me, but I know how to anchor myself and allow this feeling to move through me versus throw me so off that, course. That's right. So if we think about everything you're saying, which is really important, I'm going to like take a couple pieces apart. So there's the subconscious, which is super important. I teach the subconscious as the body itself, not this thing that's kind of outside of us as I grew up learning it, but it's actually the body. And it's for what you just said. My mind, my consciousness, which all consciousness really is, is what we're aware of. That's all it is. So I'm cooking dinner. That's what I'm aware of. I'm cutting the broccoli. I'm soaking the beans. So like I'm doing the my meal. And I'm looking at these things. And that's maybe 10% of my experience. My stomach might be clenching from something I heard on the radio driving to my house that I didn't even notice bothered me because I wasn't embodied. I was thinking about getting home and cooking. So I'm at home. I'm cutting my food, yet there's a somatic, there's a sensational residue of a clench of restriction in response to what I heard on the radio. So that subconscious thing is happening in my body has nothing to do with my present experience. It's a leftover charge of something I didn't even know was happening in real time. 
This is where sensation and somatics are the doorway to the subconscious. You don't need drugs. You can. That's great. But you don't need them because you can pause and notice, where am I constricted? And again, everyone listening can try this. Anywhere the body is constricted right now is a place that's bracing. And when we think of bracing, we can also think of protecting, which kind of personifies these places. So let's say my shoulder is constricting. Something up here is protecting something. Now that can be a very visceral protection, like I have chronic neck pain, so it's doing this. Or it can be an emotional protection. As I was hearing that thing on the radio, my body was wincing away from the radio. I didn't even notice it while I was driving. And my body's stuck in that. So without even knowing the, the root, we can just know somatically a clench. When we're consciously noticing there's no threat here, yet there's a clench. There's something in the subconscious happening that I don't even know what it is. And just identifying that starts to parse out the difference between what my body thinks or remembers and what's actually happening in the environment my body's sitting in. So with happening somatic tools, even if one is not aware if there's some, what in their subconscious is responding to something in a, in a in fear or fight or flight, that you can, with the tools, you can, by creating awareness, by feeling it, by getting in touch with it, you can begin to not need to know what triggered you, but you can actually begin to Absolutely. work through it. Absolutely, and I said to highlight the not need to know part, because that's why somatic therapy has become mm-hmm. so uh, successful and popular, because any of you who have been through talk therapy, I had for years, I have nothing against it. You know, I was, I was going to school to become a psychologist, like I was all about it. You're on this linear path, trying to understand and get to know why I'm the way I am, right? Totally fine. It, it's human nature to want to identify that. And the reality is so much lives in the soma, the body. So many memories that are pre-verbal, things that we experience in the crib, in the womb, that are still in our adult body that we'll never have the conscious perspective of ever. So I can try for decades to figure out why I do what I do. I can go to tarot card readers and psychics and have everyone tell me why it is I can't be in a relationship or something. Or I can get to know, okay, this constriction is just the simplest way of my body saying non-verbally, I'm scared. Can you be with me? And when I'm able to learn that, there's this immediate reparenting where I'm able to be with a place in me that's scared. No need to know why it's scared. And it resolved just for me being with it. It's like fucking incredible. I can't, I can't even tell you how it blows my mind every time it happens. It's happening right now as I'm talking to you. I'm like feeling well, the need- how this world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can tell. I can tell. Well, because it, there's such a release because the mind... Tra- oh is, goodness, it can yes. be a trap, right? We can get trapped in, I need to know, right? When somebody breaks up with us, I need to know why, right? We get obsessed with, I need to know. And to release that and say, I don't need to know, but I do know that mm-hmm. I need to be with myself right now. And I do know that I need to feel this. And I do know that I need to love and accept myself and be here now with me and the why is unimportant because, like you said, we've accumulated so much experience long before our conscious mind was able to, you know, process it. So things that we feel in our life as adults can make no sense. But because we are trapped in thinking that we have to know why, it's almost like that desire to know why stops us from growing. There's a, there's a physiology to that even because when, if I'm having a sensation of fear, 
and I go to my mind, why? What literally happens if you all even look at me, here's the fear. There's the option of going to the fear or going to the why. And I'm literally leaving the fear, which means it builds because there's no one with it. And it can turn into freeze and collapse and shutdown. I can literally become immobilized and depressed just from trying to go to the why instead of the what, which is, oh, my chest has something to tell me. And sometimes the chest tells you, it will see, you'll feel it and it will say, I need a break. I'm scared. I'm afraid no one likes me. And there's the context. You don't even have to know the origin of that context, but it's giving it to you in that moment. I just find that breathtaking or breath giving breath. It's beautiful that that permission to not know why I think has to be one of the most freeing concepts. You know, just like I believe the need to know why that is that important because also there are so many things in life that that have no reason why. So to release that gives permission to actually move forward and grow as a human being versus, you know, because so often when we're looking for the reason why we're looking for someone to blame. That's right. Ourselves, someone else, society. And it's interesting because the, the very, um, the very experience of a traumatized body and mind is to identify. So the, the job of a traumatized ego is to know why. So when you're looking at someone that has trauma and you're saying the why doesn't matter, I mean, you're literally taking away what feels like a light raft. So it, it's, it's this very delicate art of how do I release the why, which is terrifying for the need to know brain. And go into the felt sense is happening right now. It's abstract. It's avant-garde. It's mysterious. It, it lacks language or rationale. I mean, that's not easy for brains to go into, especially ones with trauma. Well, especially when why and or someone to blame is the very thing that gets you further mm-hmm. from getting closer to yourself. Because the very thing that gets you closer to yourself, regardless of what happened or why, is the willingness to take responsibility mm-hmm. for what you feel and to take responsibility for what I feel or for what one feels actually brings us back home. The why, the blame, all of those things are actually these really interesting distractions. I see, and you can tell me where I'm wrong. But I, I feel like those are the distractions that keep us stuck. You're, you're absolutely and not being able right. To there's come back there's home. so much nuance with those two because the need to know why one thing it actually satisfies is it becomes a strategy of like a flight response where I get to leave the sensation that's really hard to be with to go figure it out. So it's like a dissociative strategy and, and, and unconscious technique even to not be with the feeling, which is so scary to be with. And that second part of, of the responsibility, that word is so triggering for people because they think it means you're responsible for the event. And you're never responsible. You're responsible for what you do after the event. And, and I shouldn't even say... You're responsible for responding to what's inside of you. If I was abused by somebody and it shut me down, my body shut down and constricted, which they should do during those times. That's like a healthy trauma response to survive. But I develop in that state that as an adult, I'm going to feel I'm not going to trust people. I'm not going to want to be seen. Maybe I'll go home and I'll soothe with food or alcohol. I don't want to identify with any of those behaviors. I want to notice them learn how to relate to them and respond to the behaviors. So my responsibility isn't even always the behavior, depending on how reflexive and unconscious it is, especially if it was a coping mechanism that we literally grew up with since age two. We, we don't have responsibility for that. We do have responsibility for how we respond to the behavior, right? Our, our curiosity. That's where we actually have agency. 
And I, I always love to parse that out because you'll hear people say you have to be responsible and you do, but they're like, be responsible for being hurt. No, be responsible for what your body's doing after being hurt. How do you respond to that? That's the ultimate rate to self-empowerment. It's not about, oh, this happened to me and that's my, it's my, I'm to blame. Like that's the, that's the opposite, right? It's like this happened. That wasn't okay. But now how do I take care of myself? How do I come back to myself? How do I prioritize this? I, I wanted to touch on something you said because I, I see it in my practice so often where a subconscious trigger happens and it's almost like in a trance lights like state that what happens next, the soothing of what happens next, the disassociating from the feeling to just reach for food and to regulate with food, it really is an unconscious kind of motion that happens after the subconscious trigger. So many don't even know. It's almost like they're halfway through the motion of self-soothing with food that they suddenly realize that's that they're it. doing it. That's, it. Like that's exactly you- what got me into somatics to begin with because I worked as a nutritionist for years. And I kept finding these people are not consciously self-sabotaging themselves. It's not even about willpower. There's some like mysterious unseen force that keeps driving them toward these foods and substances and addictions. And that's what's so important here, because when we take too much credit for the reflexive response, that's what creates shame. You don't want to take credit for your, you don't want to take credit for your unconscious reflexive responses. That's not you. That's something your body's doing to protect you. You are the one that can and say, whoa, I feel that, that that's pressure in my stomach. And it kind of, I want to get cookies and eat them when I feel that pressure. That's all you have control over is witnessing it and getting to learn its, its, its desires and its needs. And then you eventually start saying, or at least the way I work with people with food and trauma is I'll, we'll put on an alarm for 15 minutes. So let's say they want pizza, they want wine, they want cookies, whatever it is. They notice the, the craving or they even notice themselves eating it. Sometimes we don't even know what we're doing until we're in the moment. And once they have the noticing, they put the timer for 15 minutes and they sit with their body and they notice from where does it come from? What part of me is wanting this? And then after the 15 minutes are up, they get all this information of their emotions, memories they forgot about, needs, desires, so many things in those 15 minutes. And then I say, then once you know that, either eat the cookies or don't. And then most of the time, they don't even need them anymore because the cookies were soothing the discomfort, but their relating to the discomfort inside them actually soothed it. So it is that self-regulation. They didn't need to regulate with cookies. So it's just profound when we really learn we have this agency to respond to the sensations as they come up, but not to credit ourselves as creating them or it's our fault they're there in the first place. And as probably as a young person, not having the tools to stop mm-hmm. and be present to mm-hmm. a feeling and process a feeling. That's that's a very mature act to be able to to stop and go, oh, I'm I'm feeling this sensation in my body. And from this sensation, I'm gonna go soothe myself. Mm-hmm. And this is how I soothe myself. Right. So even as an adult, I think you gain the awareness and tool to stop instead of the stressful meeting happened and now I found myself halfway through a bag of cookies before I became conscious again, right? I would imagine in your workshops and your courses that is that kind of some of the tools that you're teaching is to in that walking away, let's just use the stressful meeting. You walk away from the stressful or encounter with a loved one or something. And and is the is the tool 
to stop. I mean, if you're not that's conscious, right. you're not conscious, right? Like a lot of people wake up after a bag of cookies. So is it the point that you wake up that you stop, set the cookies down, and then see if you can identify where this Absolutely. is? Absolutely. And again, you're saying some important things because I, so I'll think of my own history with binge eating. There was one way I managed a lot of my childhood trauma that I didn't even know I had. It was just stuck in my body. Those binging sessions were mostly dissociative. Like I didn't realize until I was so sick, I was about to throw up that I was even binging. So when we go to what we said earlier, I wasn't even embodied in the moment of binging. There was, there was nothing to be aware of. I was somewhere else. And that's the most important piece here is when we're doing these coping mechanisms, it's like, and everyone that's listening right now, notice your body. Like, are your legs crossed? Are your hands crossed? How are you breathing? Are you, is your finger doing something? Are you looking at another screen? Until you notice, did you notice? Were you aware this was happening? Probably not. So because I wasn't embodied with the binging itself, I would dissociate. And then from the dissociated plate, I would binge. I wouldn't choose to binge and then dissociate. It started after being dissociated already. So doing enough somatic work was starting to help me feel the capacity or I should say, nourish the capacity to be with whatever drove me to the binge. And then while I was with it, this is what we teach in the workshops, learning very simple methods, some I've already been sharing here, of how to pause and relate to the sensation, not identify with it, but relate with it. And when you practice that relating over the course of like a couple days even, it starts to become habitual. Then over the course of weeks and months, it becomes just this Oh, I noticed this feeling in my chest that we didn't have before. And then, and then we actually have a thing to relate to. We have a thing to be embodied into. So I'm embodied to the place in my stomach that wants to binge. Once I have that, I actually can't binge. It doesn't feel good. I can try and I tried and I, I would go there, but I would hit my container, my, my limit much quicker because I was associated. I was anchored into the feeling of the felt sense of the food going in. Whereas before there was no one home. What would bring me home? Being so uncomfortable from being so filled up through food, which is kind of the unconscious desire of binging. You're trying to root yourself somewhere. And so we get to learn how to root ourselves without the binging. And this is just binging I'm using. We can use so many different examples, right? Yeah, that, no, that was, I mean, there was so much in there. I was just like, yes, yes, yes. And, and I also come from a disordered relationship to food background. And, and what I realized in my process of healing, and I kind of had a backwards healing where I really was so disassociated from my body, which is part of the disordered eating. And in the process of healing my body from an autoimmune disorder of Crohn's, I, that's mm. actually where I began to feel. That's actually where I gained my capacity was with the food I was eating was calming me down from the inside. Mm -hmm. So I actually mm -hmm. began to feel the food. Like I went backwards into the capacity conversation and the somatic healing. I had 22 hours a day that I was awake. And in that time I was eating soluble fiber and the adrenaline was coming down. And for the mm -hmm. first time mm -hmm. I start to mm -hmm. actually feel. Because I was basically living in a trance. I was living in that reactive fight or flight trance for such a long time. So food was what started giving me the capacity to feel, weirdly. And 
food was the very thing I was using to try to feel by overeating. I was trying to feel. And that numb, overfull feeling was me trying to feel all of these things that I couldn't feel. So it's interesting to me, like I did therapy, but I still couldn't feel it. And I did all of these things to try to heal, but I couldn't feel. So when I started pulling down the physical adrenaline, the fight or flight that I was stuck in from childhood, suddenly I had this capacity mm. to feel and it was mm. scary. I was like, I'm sad, I'm mad, I'm, I'm all of these things. And, and the very thing that I was using to try to feel ultimately gave me the space to feel, but it wasn't the food that I was used to trying to feel with, you know, the, the bingy food or the salty and the sweet and the, the highly palatable. I have so, to add to that. I love yeah. that so much. Um, again, that was my, my similar experience. It, and it's such an important piece. We get to, we should do a whole other one just on this one thing, because if we go back to co-regulation and we understand co-regulation is again, finding safety with another body, again, plants, water, person, food is another body. Food is a living creature with its own intelligence, its own children, its seeds, you know, it has its own life. And when the food comes into our bodies, there's an actual relationship happening inside the body with food. So we have this intelligence of moving toward food bodies, if you will, to find safety. And some of these food bodies depress the hell out of our systems and exhaust us and numb us out, which we want when we're activated. Others totally stimulate us and put us out the roof when we're depressed. And then the ones you're talking about, the kind that you work with and eat, the ones I work with and eat, they're the balancers. And those anchor us to here. They don't press us down. They don't stimulate us up. They're not excitatory. They just bring us right here. And that's why we don't come home stressed out and ask for a bowl of brown rice and broccoli. Like it doesn't take us away from the stress. It gives us more capacity to feel the stress. And when you don't have practices for what do you do when you can feel the stress, the last thing you want to do is feel the stress. So you're only going to be moving toward foods and creating, I don't know, the recipes and such from the unconscious desire to get away from the sensation, not build capacity for it. Yeah, it is a really interesting, very much in our culture that these foods that create less capacity are the foods that we reach for when we are at our you know, we're stressed out or we come home from a long day at work and then we reach for these foods that ultimately create less capacity. And to me, what I love about working with, you know, soluble fiber and legumes is that I have the most capacity I've ever had in my life to feel. I have the most capacity to be responsible for what I feel. I have the capacity to grow and change and, and be curious and learn and be bad at stuff. I have all this capacity that I never had in my life. Because without capacity, I was, I was stuck in perfectionism and I was stuck in all of right. these things that have no capacity. That's right. I, and I think that's one thing that makes probably your work and my work very unique is the, the trauma-informed lens through specifically soluble fiber. Because I don't know any other courses on trauma that spend the whole week talking about food. And that's why we do it and we do it right in the beginning. Because how can I expect these people to do high sensational practices? when they have zero capacity for it in their bodies. Whereas the food is actually the shortcut to building the capacity. It's not the somatic practices, it's the food. And then after a week or so, we get these, it's week two in my favorite week, week two and three, because we bring them the nutrition, the diet, everything. You come in two weeks later and, and teach us even more and answer all the questions. And you work with some of our students too, one-on-one uh, alongside as, as long as you offer that. But I love to see people say, I can't believe it. I slept for the first time in 10 years. 
I can't believe it. I didn't want chocolate today. I can't believe it. I haven't had coffee in two weeks. That has never happened to me in my life. My PMS is, is gone. My ovariances are healed. I mean, the amount of things that we get that aren't even the intention of the, of the diet I give, the only intention I have of the diet is to lower adrenaline and balance blood sugar. And when you do those two things, the nervous system can heal. And then from the nervous system healing and having less adrenaline, all these other systems heal too. So it's like you can't expect to heal your trauma if your body isn't being nourished and your food isn't building your capacity for sensation. So yes, yes, yes to everything you said. I would have never thought that the very mm. thing I was using to numb out with a different, a different food source could actually be the very thing that helped me create capacity to heal and I have to say, one of the biggest points of healing for me was mm -hmm. letting go of, I need to know. I need to know where this comes from. I found myself in a year, once I was on the beam, that first year, just sobbing, just crying, just feeling, and being present to that feeling of not needing to know where it was coming from, but just knowing that I needed to feel. I needed to feel. It was like my whole system was defrosting just mm. by bringing down the adrenaline, just by removing the sugar, just by removing the caffeine, just by removing the alcohol, all these things that were used to create these false states of security or, or comfort to let go of all of these little blankets that I had of, for security and to actually create a sense in myself of capacity. And, and somebody asked capacity to expand and contract. Yeah, the capacity to feel in a moment, frightened mm. and scared and go, that's okay. I'm with this. I'm not against it. I'm not trying mm. to shut it up. I'm not trying to suppress it. I'm with it. I think capacity doesn't mean we're healed and we never feel. Actually, quite the opposite. Capacity that's means so we feel everything cool. and it's okay. Important to Would say, you? yes. Because I have found a, a good number of people will think by building capacity, they should never feel unpleasant things again. And the reality is no capacity gives you the ability to feel the unpleasant thing. Let them move through you much quicker. And like you said, not be against them. You're just with them. And that's a true unconditional self-love. Like when we hear like, love yourself, what self are we loving? Are we loving the self that hurts? Are we loving the self that's embarrassed? Are we loving the self that sabotages? Or are we just loving the self that's like easy to love? Any part that comes through, if I have capacity, I can literally be with it and love it into being and moving through me <laughs> other than hating it and closing it up and denying it and pushing it away and then it just festers inside of me the ex-perfectionist in me is still in me but when i feel those moments of wanting to be loved by being perfect i go oh it's, yeah it's, yeah yeah it's not this idea i think this idea of healed is this this person who's perfect in their in this in this weird kind of like me. mutated way but in actual healing is a whole it's this entire experience that is breathing mm -hmm. i love fluid i love Flexible. that healing or healed i don't believe in healed but healing is is really that ability to be with myself that's all it is it doesn't mean i don't get angry it means i get to be with my anger and there's a humility to it instead of the kind of trauma response a lot of us go into around healing where oh if i'm healed i won't have any inconvenient traits anymore that's just not reality, but it can be a dissociative kind of desire in, in this healing journey that we take. 
something stuck out with me in my first year of practice where a client of mine said, you know, I thought I had dealt with this, but it came back. And I remember in that moment going, yeah, we're, we're not this linear person that we just keep moving on from things. Things will revisit us and we get this opportunity to interact again mm. and again and again. And we get this opportunity. And it's an opportunity. It's not, oh, I thought I healed. It's more, I get this opportunity to keep showing mm. up for myself and keep loving myself. It can be seen as an opportunity versus a setback. Because I think this idea of like, oh, once I deal with it, it's gone. No, my little perfectionist self <laughs> still going to be like, hey, and I'll be like, I think that's so good for here because it's not about like you know like a like an old eighties arcade game where you like beat the boss. There isn't this thing to beat. There's something to get to know, and then like you said, when when it's it's a young part, so when it feels secure with you, it feels secure, and then when it doesn't and it comes up, like I want to be liked, like oh I know you do, I'm gonna help you through that. Oh yeah, you helped me through it. And then it's settled. So it's this constant kind of rupture and repair cycle inside of us that is part of the healing journey. Not this end to these parts, but kind of like they almost mature as we mature. They change as we change. They don't go away. They don't leave. They they become part of us, right? Better, more part of us. It becomes this integrated part. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I, I want to be respectful of your time. And for those watching, where can they find you? How can they work with you? It's well, the easiest way is so my website, holisticlifenavigation.com. Or if you're looking at this on Instagram, you can click on my, my thing should be included. And it's just holistic life navigation. Thank you Thank so you. much. I love spending time with you. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Luis. And I just want to say thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate each and every one of you. If you are enjoying the content of this podcast, please rate, review, share it. It helps others find what I'm putting out. I am so passionate about this work, this work of taking responsibility for our health, taking responsibility for our healing, and knowing how much power we wield in our fork. It's really quite magical. Wherever you are in this wonderful world, I hope you are doing well. <laughs>